It's lavish love for Christ that really makes the difference in your life. He's a real person. He really exists. He's not an idea. He's not some concept. He's not a philosophy. He's the living Son of God. Worth everything from your life. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Well, let me just extend a warm welcome to all of you this morning and let me say what a joy and a privilege it is to be here at First Pres. I've uh, already had two services, of course, and now a third, so they've got me running ragged this morning, but I trust that there'll be enough coherence left in my thoughts for you to get something out of our message today. Let me just offer also a special greeting from Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, If you don't know much about RTS, we have a great and rich Presbyterian heritage, and it's great to connect here with you with the Presbyterian heritage, of course, that's at First Pres. And I've enjoyed getting to know Richard over the years so well, and it's been uh, a great time today so far. So really have enjoyed being with you. Let me, of course, now turn our attention to God's Word. If you will, if you have your Bibles, let's take a look at Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 11. And if you're using your pew Bible there, you'll note this is page 1578. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let me also just point out as you're turning there that in your bulletins, there's an insert that you might find useful just to track along and follow uh, with the sermon just to know where we're going here point by point. Now let's turn our attention to what God has to say to us today. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I'll tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Thank God for his word. Let's pray together. Our Lord, this is your word, and we are your people. And Lord, these two things belong together, your word and your people. We desperately need to hear from you today, Lord, and so we ask that you would give us ears to hear 
and eyes to see what you have to say to us in this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus. Now there's a word. There's a word that always seems to evoke a response in our world today. It's amazing how many things you can talk about with people and get very little reaction, very little response. You can even talk about religious things with people. You can talk about God and the Bible and church, and people will shrug their shoulders and remain ambivalent and unconcerned. But mention the name of Jesus, and things change, and they change rapidly. People begin to react. They begin to respond. They begin to take up sides and make arguments and lay out their positions. You mention the name of Jesus, and suddenly everybody has an opinion or a reaction because Jesus makes such monumental claims about our world as Lord and God and such monumental claims on our own life and His Lordship over them that no one can actually meet the real Jesus and remain neutral and unconcerned. In fact, this is why Richard DeHaan in his very well-known book referred to Jesus as the great divider. He's the great separator, the great uh, distinguisher of all of humanity. Every single individual who has ever lived or ever will live at some point or another, even perhaps even this morning here at First Pres Greenville, will have to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? That's very much the question on Mark's mind as he wrote the words we just read moments ago. You see, in Mark's gospel, those three little stories that he's jumbled together in this one account that we just read are intentionally set up this way by Mark because he wants to call our attention to this very question, what will you, the reader, do with the Jesus you've just read about for 13 chapters? See, Mark, if we've been reading his gospel, has just laid out all of Jesus' public ministry, all his words, all his deeds, all the things that have been done. And then in this segment we just read, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, Mark lays out the three main reactions to Jesus in his day. Arguably, these are the three only responses that one could have at the end of the day to Jesus. And Mark packages them all together in a tight bundle in one passage to lay it before us to present the very same question to our hearts. Which of these three reactions are you? So Mark wants us to enter into some self-reflection today as we ponder the things that were going on in Jesus' own time period. Which of these things matches us? So let's, di- let's dive into this passage and take a look at these three responses. And as we do so, I remind you again that you have that outline to follow along where we'll be heading in this passage today. So let's jump into the first one there we see in the text, and that is blatant animosity towards Jesus. Blatant animosity. We don't have to look hard in the text to find this reaction. It comes in the very opening verse. Look down at verse 1 again. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Make no mistake about it, the chief priests and scribes were not ambivalent about Jesus. They were not neutral. They were not unconcerned. They were not giving us the shrug of the shoulders. No, for them, this was a major deal. They had made their minds up. They had already decided. They were bent on one particular option. No matter what happened, at the end of the day, he must die. 
Now, when you read that in the text, Mark wants us to be shocked by it. He wants us to be amazed and perplexed at this sort of reaction. Why? Because it's the same chief priests and scribes that have been watching Jesus for three years. And I'll tell you something, if you're being watched by the chief priests and scribes, you are being watched, right? Every word, every deed, every activity for three years they had observed about Jesus that led them to this decision to have him killed. And what were the things they had observed? Countless acts of kindness. A man with a withered hand restored. A little girl raised from the dead. Hungry people given something to eat. And when you look at that long list over 13 chapters, we ought to be perplexed. We ought to be amazed. How in the world could someone possibly have looked at the life of Jesus and all those amazing acts and those amazing miracles and good deeds and reached this particular conclusion? If anyone should have known better, it should have been the chief priests and scribes. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the teachers of the people. They understood what to look for in a Messiah. You would think that after even one miracle, they might, might reconsider their position. Maybe we were wrong about Jesus. Maybe after all, He is the chosen one of God, but instead, their conclusion is he must be killed. Mark is setting this up on purpose for us because he wants to see something. He wants us to see something very clear, and it's simply this. People who have blatant animosity towards Jesus do so in spite of the evidence. It's in spite of the evidence. It's not for a lack of information or a lack of good reasons or or a lack of facts. Those who put themselves at war with Jesus do it in spite of all the reasons that they ought to be following him and worshiping him. And so Mark wants us to ask the question, why in the world would you do that? He actually hints at it in the text. Did you you catch it? Look down again at verse 2. He gives us an insight on what's driving the motivation of these leaders. Look at verse 2. They're trying to kill Jesus, but notice what they say. But not during the feast, or the people may riot. Notice what's going on here. What's the number one thing on the chief priest's mind? Maintaining control, being in charge, getting things operating their own way, not giving up their place of religious power. The reason they resisted Jesus in spite of all the evidence, because they like to be the ones in charge of their own lives, their own religious direction, and the lives of the people under their control. And Jesus was threatening that at every turn. Who knows, maybe you find yourself here at First Pres this morning, and maybe you're here for a variety of reasons, but maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in a very similar position, resisting Jesus. Could be for a variety of reasons and for a variety of ends, and maybe you find yourself pushing back, resisting Him, even maybe outright at war with Christ. Mark's message to us is clear in this passage is that although you might think you can conquer Him, you might think you can overcome Him, there is no fruitful path for you if you have set your face against Christ, because He is Lord and He cannot be conquered. Mark's message to us today is very much the same. Those who find themselves in animosity or resistance to Jesus or on a fool's errand. There's only one posture that makes any sense pertaining to Christ, and that is bowing down in worship. But you know, Mark's not done. He wants to also introduce us to a second response in his day. It's not blatant animosity. In fact, on the contrary, you can see it there in your outline, the second response is outward association, outward association with Jesus. And of course, here's where we come to the person of Judas that the text tells us about in verses 10 through 11. 
But you should notice something about this passage. Judas appears in verses 10 through 11, but he also appears earlier, although Mark doesn't tell us the full details. In verses 4 through 5, Judas is there too, because that big argument that the money ought to be given to the poor and not used on Jesus, other gospel accounts tell us that it was Judas leading the charge against this woman. It was Judas making the case that the money should have been sold and given to the poor. And so even though Judas is at the end of the passage, he's also in the middle of the story making his case against this woman. Now to be sure, Judas was not setting himself up in blatant animosity towards Christ. No, on the contrary, Judas had aligned himself with Christ in every conceivable way. He was a follower of Christ. He was a disciple of Christ. He lived with Christ. He traveled with the apostolic circle. You can't get more intimate or more in the center than being one of the 12. Judas had put his bet on Jesus in every conceivable way, and he was associated with Jesus in every public manner conceivable. But of course, he wasn't really a follower of Jesus. The text tells us, and many others do the same, that Judas's association with Jesus was merely outward. You know, you and I have an idea in our minds that when someone has an outward association with Jesus only, that we can spot it like that. We're confident that we could pick up on it. We're sure we would know. What's interesting about Judas, though, is that it wasn't clear that he was until the very end. Don't forget that at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, it's not as if all the disciples went, well, of course it's Judas. We all know. We've all been waiting for it to happen. Okay, Judas, here's your moment. Go ahead. No, that's not what happened. On the contrary, all the disciples said, well, maybe it could be me. They didn't have any idea who it was. Why is that? Why is it that sometimes those with merely outward associations are difficult to spot? Here's the reason. Because those with outward associations with Jesus often have a veneer of holiness about them. A shell, if you will, of righteousness, usually centered around a righteous cause that they're all about. You know, Judas had a righteous cause. Did you notice it in the text? Verse 5 again. It could have been sold, this perfume, for a year's wages and given to the poor. There's Judas's righteous cause. Here's his holy endeavor. Here's what he's about, and it looks really good on the outside. In fact, as I read this story, and maybe you do the same, you think to yourself, well, maybe he's right. There's a side of us, if we're honest, that sort of agrees with Judas. We look at the story, we think to ourselves, you know, he's got a point. Maybe it should have been sold and given to the poor. But then we look a little closer. And when we look a little closer, we realize there's something very wrong here about Judas, something missing. And here's what's missing. Judas, in his relationship with Jesus, is very impersonal. Impersonal. You ever notice that? In all his reactions, or sorry, interactions to Jesus in the gospel accounts, including this one, he has no real personal engagement with Jesus, never seems to notice Jesus, never seems to pay attention to him, never seems to think about him and what might glorify him and might give him honor. In fact, on the contrary, all Judas ultimately is thinking about is Judas. And this is where you really realize what's going on with those with mere outward associations, is those with merely outward associations always end up, in the end, being simply about themselves. You know, that was true of Judas. We know from other gospel accounts that he was the keeper of the money for the apostles. He held the purse strings, supposedly to give it to the poor, but we know from those other gospel accounts that Judas would often help himself to the money. 
And suddenly this puzzle starts becoming clear and all the pieces start slipping into place in this account. You realize that Judas has no interest in the poor. He certainly has no interest in Jesus. What Judas ultimately is interested in is Judas. He is interested in taking the money that could have been used or could have been sold for this jar of perfume and put him in the apostolic coffer so he could help himself to it. What Judas was lamenting here was his own loss. And suddenly we get an inside look into Judas. No doubt at the beginning of Judas's ministry with Jesus, he probably had high hopes for, for grandeur and glory. After all, Jesus was the Christ. He would usher in the kingdom. Judas would benefit from this. He would sit at one of the 12 seats of Israel. He might even sit at the right hand of Jesus. There would be all kinds of perks and pluses. But then suddenly Jesus starts changing his tune and talking about suffering and persecution and carrying your cross. And Judas begins to realize that this is not at all turning out like he had wanted. So he starts looking for the exits and on the way out the door even sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Outward associations for this very reason have a real veneer of righteousness about them, but they can't produce long-term fruit. Here's the truth of the matter this morning is that Holy causes, righteous causes have limits to them in terms of what they can produce in you. You might have a good cause, but causes aren't eternal, but Jesus is. So let me ask you the question this morning, as you sit here at First Pres on this pretty day, you no doubt are one of the many people here involved in ministry. This church is doing a lot of really wonderful things, and I've been encouraged hearing the stories, and I'm sure many in this room are contributing time and effort and labor and uh, all kinds of things to those causes. And so let me ask you this question. What is driving all your efforts? Is it just merely a cause or is it a person? The only one thing that matters eternally, and that is the very person of Jesus Christ. That is what is eternal, and that is what can motivate over the long haul. In fact, Mark wants to tell us about that, and that leads us to the third sort of uh, tour here, part of the tour he wants to take us on in terms of reactions to Jesus during this time, not just blatant animosity or outward association, but thirdly, and most importantly, he brings us to Mary, the woman with the alabaster jar, and says, this is the response you ought to have, and it's deep affection, deep affection. You know, Mark in this account, of course, doesn't tell us directly that it's Mary, but other gospel accounts fill in the pieces here, and we realize that this is Mary, not Mary Magdalene or Mary, the mother of, of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. That Mary is the woman in view here. And I want you to notice how Mark situates Mary's story. Notice that he sandwiches her story in between the other two. So on one side is the blatant animosity, and on the other side is the outward association, but in the middle is the deep affection of Mary. Mark sets it up that way on purpose. This is a standard literary technique in Mark's gospel. He likes to lay stories out like that so that you can contrast them and juxtapose them, and it's usually the one in the middle he wants you to note as the optimum response. And it's this response of deep affection. You know, I like that word affection. You know, in our world today, if we want to have someone be a follower of Jesus, usually we ask if they believe in Jesus. Nothing wrong with that word. That's a word that comes right from the Bible. There's nothing wrong with asking whether someone believes in Jesus. The problem isn't the fact that the word occurs in the Bible. The problem is that our Western world has so emptied that word of any substance and meaning that virtually anyone can assent to believing in Jesus. But what if you change the question? 
What if I were to ask you even this morning a very different question? What if I asked you whether you delighted in Jesus? What if I asked you whether you found him to be wonderful? Do you found him to be precious to you? Do you have affection for Christ? That was Mary's response. In fact, as you can see in the story, her affection wasn't just some raw emotion. It wasn't just some uh, engendered sort of feeling. No, Mary's affection was manifested in real outward uh, evidence. And her manifestation of her affection was the sacrificial act of giving away this alabaster jar. And this is an amazing sacrifice. We know a lot from historical accounts in the ancient world about exactly this kind of perfume imported from the Far East. Very expensive very rare, very difficult to get your hands on, worth a ton of money, almost a year's wages, probably $50,000 in the modern day. This was probably Mary's life savings. It's all she had. She probably inherited it from her parents, probably passed down from generation from generation. This was her savings account. This is her retirement plan. This is all she had. She didn't have a closet full of alabaster jars. This was everything in her whole life, and she brought it, and she broke it at the feet of Jesus. Contrast that to Judas. Judas is stingy with Jesus. Mary is lavish. Judas hoards. Mary gives it all away. You know, somewhere along the line in our Christian life, we've begun to listen to our world that tells us that life is really found in, in, in living a life of self-preservation. But if we just make sure we've protected all the boundaries in our life and we've got our, our bank accounts just right and making sure everything is safe, just how we want it, that that's where abundance is. That's where vitality is. And the truth be told is that that's a lie our culture tells us. Jesus comes to us at a very different point in our lives and reminds us that life is not found in a life for protection and self-preservation, but it's a life found in giving it all away for the sake of Christ. Mark comes to us this morning with a rather paradoxical claim. Mark wants to return lavishness into our lives. Mark wants us to put back excess into our lives. Mark wants us to put back abundance in our lives, but not for us, but for Christ. Usually abundance and excess and lavishness is self-directed, but he goes, no, you're missing the point. I want all those things in your life. I just don't want them directed towards you. They're directed towards Christ and to ministry. And believe it or not, as contrary as it sounds, as paradoxical as it sounds, and as odd as it sounds, that's where abundant life is really found. Now, the application for some of you this morning may be very direct. Perhaps God, even with this text this morning, might be calling you to give away more money than you ever thought you would. For others of you, the application may be different. For others of you, it's your time. Perhaps you've put in a lockbox and kept secure and safe for your own uses and purposes. For others of you, it may be other things. Whatever it might be, Mark comes to us and says, do not make the mistake of thinking drifting along with an outward association and good causes is sufficient. It's lavish love for Christ that really makes the difference in your life. He's a real person. He really exists. He's not an idea. He's not some concept. He's not a philosophy. He's the living son of God worth everything from your life. Now you should know when you look at Mary that when Mary lavishes this affection on Jesus, 
Ironically, she does it with a great deal of theological understanding. You know, sometimes we think that affection is just this emotion we kind of drum up out of the blue, but not for Mary. Mary understood something very simply. What was driving her and pressing her to give up for Christ was the recognition that Jesus was going to give up all things for her. It was a recognition of His sacrifice on the cross for her. Jesus acknowledges this in in the text. Don't miss it. Look down at verse 8 again. Look what Jesus says. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. You know, one thing you need to recognize about the gospel of Mark at this point is that nobody saw the writing on the wall in terms of Jesus' forthcoming death. The disciples didn't get it. The, the other followers of Jesus didn't get it. The scribes and Pharisees, all they, they wanted it. They didn't understand that Jesus was intending to die. All the people that he told that he would go and die, none of them were on board, and certainly not Judas, but then comes along Mary. And Mary gets it. Mary embraces it. She understands. She gets that Jesus is going to go and die and give his life for the sins of the world. And she comes, she prepares his body for burial as a statement that I am with you. I'm on board. I'm I'm embracing the life of a suffering Savior. I know you're going to give it all for me, and now I'm giving it all for you. You want to see your life revolutionized this morning and transformed like Mary's. It doesn't come from concepts and ideas only. It comes from recognizing truth about Jesus that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, including yours and mine. It comes from a deep appreciation of the gospel. Mary, at the end of the day, was a theologian. Now, you and I hear the terms theologian or theology, and we want to run for the hills, right? We think that's some guy in a white tower somewhere stuffed away with books and doesn't care about real issues, but that's not what theology is. Theology is grasping at a deeper level who Jesus is and what he's done, and that's what Mary got. She was the theologian in the story, and the only one in a room of disciples, in a room of people that should have known better, in the midst of the scribes and Pharisees. Don't you see the paradox? Mark wants you to see out of all these people, she's the one that got it. And she's the one who gave it all away. As we draw our time together this morning to a close, we've seen three things here in this passage as Mark's taken us on the tour. Blatant animosity, outward association, and then finally, and most importantly, deep affection for Jesus. And it's only that last one that Mark is calling us to. You know, there's an ironic ending to the story, of course. Judas shows up in the story looking for his own glory and gets none. Mary shows up only concerned about the glory of Christ, and she's the one that's honored. Jesus says, wherever this story is told, in all the world, her name will be mentioned. It's a simple principle that Jesus mentioned elsewhere. He who wants to save his own life will lose it. But he who loses his own life for me in the gospel will find it in the end. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we confess that all three of these reactions are often in our heart and not enough of the third. So, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us this morning for that. But more than just forgiving us for that, Lord, change us this morning. Renew us. Bring us deep affection. 
And may it be centered on the cross of Christ, our Redeemer, our lover of our souls, who loved us so much that he died for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. The New Testament book of Romans is to the Christian life what the Constitution is to the United States. The more familiar you are with this book, the more you realize your faith is built on a solid foundation. Romans will keep your feet firmly on the ground when things go well for you, and it will bring purpose to your priorities. To purchase this series, send your check or money order to the Vineyard Bookstore at First Presbyterian Church or call 864-672-1846.